Hello there, Scott here. I don't know when you'll receive this, but until September 30th, 2016, I'm running a summer to fall fundraiser looking to raise $4,500. We're about two thirds of the way there with $1,610 to go. If we can reach this goal, the show can continue easily into 2017 and include the addition of two writers, a business manager, a graphic designer who are working with me to expand the offerings of the podcast, including a newsletter, additional graphics and information, and working on refining the sound design and sound engineering for the show. So if you're in a place where you can contribute to this campaign and help us reach that goal, you can do so via the paypal.me link in the show notes. If you use PayPal and just want to send something directly through the app or elsewhere, the email address for that is show at the permaculturepodcast.com. Or you can drop something in the post, the Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Now then, let's get things started. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Perrine Hervé-Griere, author, along with her husband Charles, of Miraculous Abundance, one quarter acre, two French farmers, and enough food to feed the world. During our conversation today, we spend a lot of our time talking about international permaculture and the French permaculture scene, what books and materials are available in that region of the world for folks who are interested in getting involved in permaculture, finding out what has and hasn't been translated so far, as well as climate analogs and the authors who are writing for that region of the world. Along the way, Perrine shares with us her work in transitioning to a life of farming and in doing so finding permaculture and with it a way to move forward with her husband and partner as a farmer to raise their family and their food together and in doing so to spread permaculture throughout France and the world. So sit down, relax, we'll get into the conversation and I'll join you again afterwards. Then Perrine, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to farming, and we'll take the conversation from there. Okay. So my name is Perrine Hervé-Gruyer. I'm French. Um, I was born in the north of France, north of Paris, and I was raised in a um, quite big city in France, 60,000 inhabitants. All my childhood and uh, teenagehood, I was very much involved in sports especially in basketball. So I was a captain of my basketball team for years and years, and I was very much into it. But I, I also managed to um, do pretty well in school, which led me to um, college, uh, studying law, international law. I was fascinated by uh, international issues, whichever, politics, uh, geopolitics, scientifical, economical, social, anything related to how the world works. And then I decided I would go to Japan because I was uh, writing my uh, PhD thesis, but I was a bit bored, you know, since I'm a sportswoman, I needed action. <laughs> so I was bored with the, uh, keeping my, my days uh, on, on the chair, so I had to do something. So I went to Japan and then I found a job with a law firm there and I stayed basically. And then was hired as an in-house lawyer for a French company. 
But even though I loved what I do, what I did, sorry, what I was doing at that time, I loved being a lawyer. Intellectually speaking, I loved the challenge. I loved the fact that I was living abroad, that I had a chance to meet different people from different backgrounds, cultures, countries, etc. There was something missing in my life, I guess. I was very happy doing what I was doing, but every single one morning I was wondering, well, okay, I'm going to help my company to um, make millions of dollars. And what for? What's the point? How would that help in life? How would that help in the world? So at some point, I came back to France for a few weeks holiday. And I felt like I had to think about what the next step was going to be. So I needed a break. I needed to think about that. So I quit my job and I took um, a massage training session here in France. Uh, in fact, I was thinking I would stay in France for six months and, and go back somewhere else uh, after the six months. But during that uh, massage training, I met my, my husband, Charles, and everything changed because he was... Um, he had already family duties. He had two daughters from a previous marriage. So he wanted to stay in France, which I didn't plan, actually. So it was uh, quite difficult for me not to go back to my international life. But then we had to recreate a new life, a new family life, uh, which I was not used at all either because I was not married. I, I didn't have any kids. But there was something I knew I wanted to do or I wanted to experience I wanted to be able to produce my own food, good food, therefore organic food. And I wanted as much as possible to avoid supermarkets, to avoid buying things. You know, I've, I had been living in, in huge uh, cities like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and I was just fed up with uh, this type of life. So I wanted to experience something new. So at first... We were self-sufficient. That was our goal, our aim. And we were very happy like that. But one day Charles told me, oh, I love this so much. I love farming so much. I want to do it for real. I want to do it as a professional. And I said, that was in 2006. Yes. And I said, oh, go ahead. Become a farmer. I'll give you a hand from time to time. But that was not for me. That was not my plan. I could not uh, see myself selling vegetables to people. There was something weird in that. But he, he got started. And I was like, oh, no, I can't let him do it all by himself. So I'm going to help him. So I helped, of course. And from day one, we were organic. That was not a question at all. You know, it's a big um, issue here in France. Either you should be certified organic or not because... People think that there's no reason why you should pay to prove that you're safe, that you're clean, which I understand. But we wanted to tell our customers that what, whatever we would have grown in our gardens for us or for our children was the same that we would sell them. The, there was no question at all. We went organic certified from day one. And also, Charles has a passion for horses. So from day one also, we started to work with the horsepower. I don't know how to say that in English, but we, we would work the soil with the horses. We, didn't, we wouldn't plow, of course, because we already had 
the knowledge and the feeling that plowing was not good for the soil. But, um, well, there was no way we could work with a tractor. Biggest joke is that whenever something with an engine see, sees us, it breaks. <laughs> it's <laughs> somehow true. <laughs> so we did things for the people we were at that time. And the people we were were dreamers, <laughs> idealistic people, and with no knowledge at all. And that was very important. No knowledge at all in terms of agriculture, agronomy. We hardly had visited a farm uh, to tell you the truth. But somehow, you know, in permaculture, you say the problem is a solution. That was a big problem to us. But somehow it became a solution because if we had had any type of knowledge, any type of, um, I, would even, I would even say philosophy, I believe that we wouldn't have been looking almost desperately everywhere for knowledge, technical knowledge in terms of uh, agriculture and growing vegetables and um, experience also. So we've been frantically uh, frantically looking for people who could help us, who had some some experience to share in terms of uh, organically grown vegetables and stuff that exists, but it was difficult to find people who had the same goal or the same image of the way they would produce things. We are nature lovers. Charles is has been a nature lover for, I guess, all his life, and his previous life, he spent it on the sea. He was a sailor. And he had a, a, a boat, and they would sail all over the world, all around the world, uh, with children to study the environment, to study native people in uh, very isolated islands and stuff. So he was very much into it. So what we were looking for is was a way to reconnect this love or care that we have for the environment and the production because we wanted want we were wanting to to make a living out of it we had some savings that we used to build the farm to buy the tools to buy the greenhouse etc but at some point uh, there there was no money left so we had to make a living out of this so it had to work but just we didn't know how so in 2006, we registered, uh, well, Charles resist- registered as a farmer. And the real first season was in, uh, in spring 2007, yeah, sorry. But uh, so as I said, we were organic, of course. We were working with the horse, but uh, we were pretty classical in terms of um, uh, production techniques. And then in 2008... In winter, I remember, one friend of ours sent us an email with an article about bio-intensive microagriculture in the U.S. And this article was talking about John Jevons' movement, but it also mentioned the word permaculture. And that was it. That was it. Personally, I think I would have given up without permaculture. I was happy to help Charles but I was not happy with what we were doing at that time. We were real beginners. 
we had success. Somehow we managed to produce, we managed to sell, but there was something lacking for me. The meaning again, I guess. The meaning I've been looking for for so long was lacking. And then when we read that article and the definition of permaculture, wow, that was it. What drew you to permaculture? What about it spoke to you so much? It was like, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle would assemble thanks to permaculture. It would reconnect the nature and the safe and uh, healthy production we we were eager to, to have. And very suddenly, it seemed to be like an evidence. Uh, you know, like, uh, no, you wouldn't say evidence in English. It was like, that's it. That's it. That's what I've been looking for for so long. Something that has a meaning, something that is efficient, something that is very simple, in fact, and very logical. And I guess that was it. So I ran to my computer and I started to look on the internet and search for permaculture experiences, permaculture books. Unfortunately, at that time, there was hardly anything in French. Only the, um, the first B Bill Mollison uh, introduction to permaculture had been translated, nothing more. So thanks to our previous lives, we, we were, if not good uh, English speakers, at least English readers, which helped us. So that, that was it. We started to read whatever we could find. We started to watch all uh, videos that we could find on YouTube. And uh, that's how we started permaculture. One of the big pushes for many folks who are practicing permaculture and calling their work permaculture is they take a design course. Have you taken a permaculture design course in your work? Yes, I did. But um, as I told you, we found out about permaculture in 2008 in winter. And uh, the only courses that you could take in France were in, in summer. So not adapted at all for farmers. They were only for people who wanted to become designers. But that's how, at first, we understood that permaculture had not penetrated at all the farming world. Not at all, at least in France. So I looked for a course in England and then in November 2010, I went to, uh, to south of England to take a PDC. And I have to say that, and this is not related to the quality of the course, <laughs> let's be clear about that. I was extremely disappointed because my expectations were completely technical. I was expecting uh, a course where somebody would give me all the magical trick to be able to produce the best way possible in the permaculture context, if I may say so. But there, there was nothing at all. There hardly was a few hours, maybe one hour per day spent in the garden, nothing related to handwork, only talking, talking, talking. And um, since at that time I was still a very, very... Um, excited about uh, what permaculture could render and the fact that it was completely connected to techniques. Uh, I was disappointed. But then, of course, I understood that uh, my disappointment was due to my misunderstanding 
of what maybe not what permaculture was but the way it had been taught and the way it had been experienced so far at least in Europe it speaks very much to a lot of the educational perspectives on permacultures because of how there is an, a generally agreed upon curriculum, mm -hmm. but the way that that's taught and what someone gets out of it, the amount of lecture versus hands-on can vary greatly, as can the distinction between whether you're learning techniques like swales and Hugo culture, or if you're learning about design. Yeah. And the end result is that you should be able to design any of those techniques but how is that relayed to you in a class and how are your expectations going into the class balanced by the instruction? Yep. And now that I'm teaching, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I know now, and, and thanks to that experience, I'm happy to share that with, the, with my, uh, my students. I'm happy to share that because it, it, it's mainly a question of expe expectations. We are trying here, since we are a farm, to give the best of what we've done and what we've seen, what we've observed, observed and the way we think people should understand permaculture and how it could fit in their daily lives. But uh, I always share that with them because I think it really is a question of expectation. It's It really is... How do you see yourself in that permaculture wonderful thing? <laughs> Which can also then influence the results that you get from the class and where you wind up taking that information, whether you try to go for design, as so many of us are pushed towards, or to teach, or to do something else with it. So that, that, that's a very uneasy balance to find, but uh, when you find it with the group, it's just great. When it comes to taking these ideas of permaculture and applying them to your farm, what kind of changes did you make coming back, having been farming since 2006, not taking a PDC until several years later, and like the distinction between farming, discovering permaculture, and then really immersing yourself into it? I think that what really occurred to us is that it's the fact that we were not supposed to design a farm we were really supposed to create an ecosystem and that the services rendered by the ecosystem would be the tools that would help us produce more. But beside that, we had to insert different type of techniques, the techniques we love and the one we feel comfortable with in that ecosystem. And that was pretty big to us to think that we were not just focusing on producing something, but on creating the ecosystem. And also from that emerged the fact that we had to create some soil. So that was, I think, the, the first huge connection we've made. In terms of changes, we had already planted lots of trees. We already had uh, ponds. We had already done a lot of logical things on the farm. So the design itself didn't change that much, but the way we tried to accommodate the relationship from one ecosystem to the other, this um, border uh, rule, that was very important to us. So we tend to recreate the conditions where there would be a very strong relationship from one ecosystem and another that would help produce more. 
for example, we have a, an island on the farm that we've completely created because uh, the land on which we, we grow vegetables is completely flat. It used to be a pasture for cows. So there was nothing there before, not a tree, not a pond, nothing. So we had done that before. But we only created the island because Charles used to be a sailor and he, he had always dreamed to uh, grow vegetables on an island and that was it. But then we realized that the pond we've created was facing south. Therefore, the light was reflecting on the pond and um, the island and the vegetables growing on the island had more sun. And then we realized that thanks to the ponds also, we had more heat, especially at night here. Temperatures had a, have a, a vicious tendency to, to go very, very, very uh, deep, uh, to go down, sorry, to be very low, mm -hmm. even in summer. So we do appreciate when the pond keeps the heat uh, during the day and releases it overnight. And one of the first things we've done in terms of real change in the, the farm design was to plant a food forest. I think that the, the concept of food forest is the one that was the most surprising, amazing, and just, yeah, extraordinary concept to us. Very simple, but it was like, oh, how come that we hadn't thought about that before? You know, when you find it, it seems so simple. And it's why didn't I think of that? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> In developing a food forest, were you following the work of like Dave Jackie and Eric Tonsmeyer? Or is there an emerging food forest tradition within France? No, there was nothing in France, unfortunately. So the, the Tonsmeyer book is absolutely excellent, but it was too technical for me at that time. So I read it, I went through it the two volumes actually, <laughs> but um, the most inspiring person we found was uh, Robert Hart. You've heard about yes. the British guy. And then the one who took over here, Martin Crawford. And to me, uh, nowadays, he's um, the, the person I would refer to as the specialist for Forest Garden. I would say very simply because he's in England and because when he talks about trees, I know that the trees that he's planting, I could plant the same here and they would survive and they would have the same climate conditions. And, uh, well, the similarity, you know, uh, unite us. So I, I feel more comfortable with him talking about um, uh, his forest food forest than a food forest that would grow in Australia, for instance. But... Despite that, I read everything and I watch everything and I'm amazed when I see a food forest growing in, uh, in tropical climate, of course. It's one of the questions that I always face when people ask me, what book should I get for where I am? Trying to find something as localized to where they are. Because with Dave Jackie and Eric Tonsmeyer writing here in the American Northeast, I'm not too far from them. Mm -hmm. So it's a perfect resource as opposed to some of the ones that have been written, say, in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I always advise my students not to start with English uh, English speakers, of course, English readers. I always advise them not to start with this one because, again, it's big. It may sound complicated at first. So most of the time I encourage them to read Martin Crawford uh, and his book is excellent. And I guess the Tons Meyer's work comes second. 
when mm -hmm. you're very comfortable with what you've done, when you've planted and you've seen your forest garden growing, then you're more, you're, you're more comfortable with the concept, you know what you're talking about and what they are talking about. That's how I feel when it comes to permaculture books. I like to read Rosemary Morrow, mm -hmm. then David Holmgren, and then consider breaking out Mollison's big black book of permaculture. <laughs> well, actually, I have to say that uh, the, the Patrick Whitefield, Patrick Whitefield, uh, the Earthcare Manual, was one of the big, big, big reference to us. We, of course, started with the Bill Mollison, but uh, Patrick Whitefield's book, is very complete and uh, for a start, if you don't want to get too technical in one or another subject, I think this book is very good. Unfortunately, it's never been translated into French, but uh, it's good. I have a copy of that also, and it was my first real introduction to temperate climate permaculture. Ah, yeah, good. We've had a conversation that covers a great survey of permaculture and your intersection with it as a farmer, but we haven't talked much about your farm and your book. Mm-hmm. When it comes to your work, you've mentioned the farm. How large of a space do you have under production? It changes frequently the, lately, but this year we have 4,500 square meters. So that should be something like one acre, is it? That sounds about right, yes. Mm. We used to have more space because we had... Um, Two guys helping us, two, two employees in charge of uh, vegetable growing. But one of them left because he wanted to create his own farm, uh, which uh, we had uh, actually uh, anticipated. We knew that. And we were quite tempted to, to remain small because uh, for the past, let's say, Four or five years, we've been developing, developing, growing, growing, growing. And as it is said in permaculture, we don't feel comfortable with it. I mean, we can't avoid the fact that we are pretty well known now in the permaculture world in France, that a lot of people are looking at what we do. So we were tempted because we, when I say we, Charles and myself, we have to answer uh, all those questions people are asking, we have to uh, see the media where they are coming, etc. We didn't have much time to work uh, outside, so we had to hire people, and we were pretty happy, actually, to hire young guys, completely inexperimented, so we trained them, and uh, we knew from day one that they would create their own farm one day, but it was okay. We, we, we agreed that they would stay for two or three years, and then that they would leave. So... As I said, in, in the past years, we wanted to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. But now, I think we've really experienced the meaning of this principle, the uh, essential principle of permaculture, remain as small as possible. If you are small, you can be efficient. If you are, are small, it's easier to keep things fluid. I mean, you have more possibilities to change things, to find new customers or to change customers or to change the production or to be uh, more efficient, to observe more in intensely. And um, since we've, uh, we've published the, the result of the study that we've led here for three years, we for sure are determined to remain small. 
because we only grow uh, vegetables on one acre, but the the farm itself is uh, twenty hectares. But we have a lot of woods in those okay. twenty hectares, so we could grow bigger, but we don't want to. And you're happy with the productivity that you have as a farmer and for an income from that acre that you have? To be honest with you, if we only had the farm, I, I should, shall put it that way, only Charles and myself could make a living out of it. Today, and it's been four or five years now, we have employees. And, you know, in France, it's extremely expensive to uh, pay salaries and taxes. It's uh, just uh, tremendous. So if we can afford that, it's because we organize training sessions also. So Charles and myself spend a lot of time organizing, teaching in those training sessions. Therefore, there was no way we could spend uh, 100% of our time growing vegetables. Because of that, we had to hire people. But as, as I said, we are pretty proud of that today because hiring means also train, training young guys and we know they are good. We know they will create their own farm someday. So somehow, uh, through this um, this employment uh, politics, if I may say so, we are disseminating the concept and trying to prove that it works. And it works not only in our farm, but it works uh, for others also. We've covered quite a bit. And I'd, I think that I could sit here and talk to you for another hour or two about these experiences. Because just your story of how you came from law to farming to permaculture. I haven't found anyone who, who just kind of arrived at permaculture from the get-go. It always seems to be, I had another life, I had another career, and then I found this, this thing that spoke to me. And we see so many people, we meet so many young people, highly motivated. It's great because um, we know it's hard, it's tough, you know, because uh, it's been a terrible experience, a great experience, but very, very hard. You know, in my previous life, I've done difficult things, but I've never experienced something that difficult as what we do now. But it's such a passion that you cannot go back. There's no way you can go back when you found it, at least for me and for Charles, I guess it's, it's the same. And when we see all those young people, young or not that young, actually, uh, wanting to go to permaculture, wanting to go to to go back to farming, and most of the time they are educated people. And in France, it's pretty awkward to go back to farming, just like in the U.S. when you're well-educated and you went to university and you have a degree, etc. And it's um, such a... Go there with such enthusiasm and passion. It's really good. But we know that it's a hard way. It's a long way. And we have to try and help them because it's not that easy. And there's no not such a model yet in France because at the moment, uh, the main uh, mainstream agriculture is just like the one you have in the U.S. I mean, uh, you plow, you, you grow uh, maybe cereals or wheat on hectares and hectares with big machines, and you get uh, subsidies from Europe, from the ACP. And uh, so it, it, it's not a job that uh, I would love to do, I would dream to do. But the, the thing we practice, the, the way we practice here is really, um, is really appealing to a lot of people. 
it speaks some to that image of a farmer and a more traditional kind of a rural lifestyle while also still being able to engage intellectually. If that's the background you come from, there's a lot of research and interest as an academic, or if you just want to get your hands dirty, there's a breadth of farming in this way that, that speaks to more than just growing food. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me. I was, you know, in looking through your book and reading the different sections that caught my eye, you know, I wasn't expecting where the story would go. And I'm always surprised whenever I sit down and talk with someone and hear their story. And I was just wondering if you have any final thoughts before we draw the conversation to a close. Well, I don't know. I would say that today I feel like something is going on here in France, but in other countries also, because I, I've talked to many people. We've had uh, American guests, guests lately, uh, teachers from uh, different universities specialized in uh, food, in urban agriculture, and something's happening. So I'm pretty happy to be part of it. And I know that it's not something just trendy or fashionable or whatever you, you may think. I think there is something huge coming, and not a revolution, but uh, I think that, you know, this society maybe has experienced the worst when it it comes to capitalism, to consumption, to money. But it's so beautiful to see among those dirty things something blooming, something like a new energy coming out from people you wouldn't expect, actually. And um, I'm pretty confident now that... Uh, a lot of people are going to take over. You know, here in France today, we feel like a bit like grandparents. We feel like we've done what we could do. Of course, we're going to keep on doing it. And uh, we're eager to keep on look, searching for, for new techniques, discovering new tools, and etc. But I'm really confident that um, other people are taking over. And it's going to be a success. So I'm very happy about that. Well, I look forward to following your work in the future. And I imagine I'll be hearing from your students in a couple more years as they're writing and developing new materials. So thank you not only for the incredible book that you've written about your experiences, but also what you've shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was Perrine. You can find her book, Miraculous Abundance, at chelseagreen.com, and links to more information in the show notes. What I really enjoyed about this conversation was that focus on the bioregional and a sense of place that, for those of us here in the United States, something like Edible Forest Gardens is a great book for us. But for Perrine in France, the work of Martin Crawford fits better in developing and creating an appropriate food forest. I also like how they're blending activities between working as farmers as well as educators, and in doing so that the additional income from classes and workshops help provide for them, and then in turn their farm allows them to provide additional employment opportunities and education for those who come and work for them. It's a nice fit and a win-win for what it is that they're doing, even within, as was expressed, what sounds like a sometimes difficult structure for a small business owner to be not only successful but also to provide employment for others. They also 
found what worked for their site as well as for themselves. That permaculture was a bit of a revelation for Perrine in continuing to pursue farming as a vocation and that you can bring the very technical to the work on the ground, but should get started somewhere first and do so without an over-reliance or abundance on education that there's a place for it. But sometimes all we really need to do is, as I've been saying a lot recently, is get our hands dirty to put seeds in the soil and plants in the earth and watch them grow and in do so feed ourselves, our community, and through our experiences, add our knowledge to the world. It's one of the reasons why I've always been fascinated by permaculture is because of how big the umbrella is. You can come to this from really any background, even though for so long the landscape has been where we very often find an intersection that first draws us in. But once you get started, you can take permaculture wherever you like. And it's something that I encourage each of you to do. Whether you want to grow food, a family, a culture, a community, wherever it is that you want to practice permaculture, however it is that you want to practice, you can do so as a farmer or as a designer or as a teacher. Those are many of the common paths set out before us, but there's also a whole world ahead of us. And we're going to need to fill every niche with permaculture practitioners. If you're looking at walking down this path and exploring it further, or if you're listening and you're considering making some kind of change in your life so that you can practice more permaculture and there's anything that I can do to help you find your way or connect you with someone as a mentor or for additional resources, whatever it might be, after nearly six years of creating this show, my Rolodex, as much as that's almost an anachronistic word these days, is full of people from all over the world who are practicing permaculture in different ways. And I'd be happy to help connect you to them. So feel free to get in touch with me. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or drop something into the mail. It's always a delight to go to my P.O. Box and find a postcard or a letter from a listener. And I'd love to hear from you. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. And until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>